There's Aphrodite. Uh, okay, you know, have you, have you ever heard Aphrodite? Aphrodite was the goddess of sexuality. Okay, so not only did they love pleasure, but they worshipped pleasure. So imagine you're a young Christian in this environment, a city which loves power and money, uh, many other gods, a city which loves uh, pleasure, especially sexual pleasure. Like one pastor said, the people of Corinth had sex on the brain all the time. Okay, so you're, you're living there in this hostile environment to Christians, and it's difficult for you. Uh, you see your friends who have not become Christians, and they seem to be having a really good life. In fact, uh, when you look at them, they're probably richer than you, and they're probably happier because they have got very stable jobs. Because from what we understand, in the ancient world, especially in Corinth, if you wanted to be a craftsman, uh, if you wanted to be part of a, a craftsman's guild or have a trade, you had to have a patron deity. You had to bow down between, before a patron god. So if you became a Christian, that immediately ruled you out of that craft or that guild or that trade. So it was a very hard choice to become a Christian. But not only that, things have become very confusing in your church because uh, the church had been founded by the Apostle Paul and uh, he had set it up, but he'd, been, he'd gone away, he'd gone away somewhere else and uh, now some other teachers had come into the church and they had also called themselves apostles and they were visually very impressive. They preached in a very inter- entertaining, interesting way but they were, be- they were beginning to preach a message which was different from the Apostle Paul, right? Uh, they, they were focusing on a, a more accommodating message, a more tolerating message, a message which was moving away from Jesus Christ and the cross. So imagine how you felt uh, during this time. Difficulty outside in the world, confusion in the church. And so you come to church on Sunday, to the Corinthian Presbyterian Church, and you're sitting there and you're a bit confused, and you look up in the pulpit, the pastor, whoever comes up to the front, and there he is, with a letter from the Apostle Paul himself. And what does Apostle Paul say to you, you the confused young Christian in Corinth? Well, he says in chapter 6, verse 1, As for God, fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, he says. Do not receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the, ta- is the day of salvation. So what uh, Paul is saying in uh, colloquial, normal language is, don't blow it. Don't throw it all away. Don't throw away God's grace. That's what it, that's what it means to take something in vain. right? You, you take it for granted. You, you, you don't treasure it. You lose it. You throw it away. And he's, that's what he's saying. Look, you might have doubts. You might have opposition from the world. You might have difficulty. right? You might have second thoughts. But don't throw it all away. Don't blow it. Now he quotes here, uh, Paul does in, in verse 2, from a passage in Isaiah, the, the, the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, uh, in chapter 49, verse 8, where it says, In the time of my favor I heard you, in the day of salvation I helped you. And the original context of this uh, quote is actually God promising the Israelites when they were under the, the, uh, the slavery to the kingdom of Babylon, that he would come and free them from slavery, free them from exile, and bring them back into the promised land, back to Israel. But Paul is actually saying that the prophecy of Isaiah 49 is not just for that time only, 700 years ago, right? I mean 700 BC. But actually what was written in 700 BC was looking forward to Jesus. Jesus 
and the cross was the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 49 verse 8. It, is, it was not fulfilled when God brought Israel back from Babylon, but it was fulfilled when God saved the world by sending Jesus to die on the cross. And that's why he says, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. See, the context tells us that God's grace is found where? At the cross. It's found at Jesus Christ. So if you look up here on this slide, context is really important. So, um, just before uh, Paul writes in chapter 6 verse 1, obviously he writes in chapter 5, and the whole of chapter 5, actually, uh, from as you would have learned last week in the sermon, is all of a reminder of what Christ has done for us. So in verse 14 it says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Okay, in verse 19 it says, uh, this is what God was doing, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And in verse 21, which comes just before chapter 6, And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what Paul is really saying here is, the fulfillment of Isaiah is found in Jesus. Now is the time of, faith, uh, of salvation. Now is the time of God's grace. Now is the time of God's favor. And he's telling you, the young Christian, faced with all these temptations and doubts in church, don't blow it, don't throw it all away because you have this wonderful treasure that God was prophesying 700 years ago to be found in Jesus. That in Jesus, you will be set free from judgment, you will be set free from your sins, you will be given God's grace. Now how were the young Christians, as I told you in Corinth, you know, uh, tempted to blow it all away or to throw away their salvation? Well, the first way uh, is that they were in danger of moving away from the gospel that Paul preached. They were moving away from the message about Jesus Christ dying for them, taking away their sin. And by moving away and listening to these new apostles, the new teachers, they were in danger of losing God's grace, God's salvation, and God's favor. And that's why in the rest of chapter 6, verse 3 to verse 13, Paul asked them, right, why do you want to move away from my message? Why, what reason have we given you to, to leave? Okay, it's like, you know, it's like let's say someone wants to break up with you or something, right? You say, why? Why do you want to break up with me? What have I done to offend you, right? And that's what Paul is saying, you know, what, what have we done as apostles that you should want to move away to another message, another gospel? And that's why he says that in verse 3, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Now, as Shirley read the whole list of things that Paul was commending of himself, you might sort of say, well, there's a lot of things, isn't it? Now, if you're paying attention, you can actually see that there is a pattern or structure to what Paul is saying. Now, I sort of helped you here, if you look up here on this slide, right? He basically says three things, three things about his ministry 
which says commends himself, which gives people no reason to move on or move away to a different gospel. Now, for those of you who uh, pay attention, you can see that the first group is made up of a few groups of three. Okay? So it says there that uh, it starts off with, uh, he commends himself in great endurance. And then there's a group of three, right? In troubles, hardship, and distress, that's one group of three. Uh, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, that's another group of three. In hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, that's another group of three. So basically, what Paul is saying, the, f- the first reason he's giving is, because of my great suffering and endurance, why would you want to move away? Right? So Paul is basically saying, look, I, 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 I give myself to you, I poured myself into bringing the gospel to you and to the world. I'm not doing it for my own benefit. I'm not doing it to get rich. I'm not doing it to get famous. I'm not doing it to get a big church or to, to get a big crowd. I'm doing it for you. Why would you want to move away? Now, the, the suffering he's talking about here, the endurance, if you notice, look up at the list again. Right? Pay, pay attention not to me, but to, to God's word. It's not general suffering. right? He's not saying, you know, I, 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 I really suffer because I've got a bad cold, right? or you know, because I've got acne or something. But all the suffering he's talking about here in this section is, is the suffering which comes about because he cares for the gospel and he cares and loves of God's people. Right? So that's why he has trouble and hardship and distress. Because he's this missionary, he's gets, he gets beaten up and imprisoned and, 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 and he's caught up in riots because he's preaching the gospel. He has sleepless nights and, and because of hard work, because he's working hard to bring the gospel to people and because he loves them. So he says, why would you want to move on to another gospel? Now the, the reality is, uh, for people who are in ministry work like Paul, who care for the gospel and who love people, Ministry is like this. Obviously, not everybody gets beaten up or put in prison, but there is hard work and sleepless nights and distress and hardship. Over the last uh, few weeks, actually, uh, I've, uh, I, I, I've met people who reflect that. So I went to the Project Timothy talk a few weeks ago by David Jackman, and I met a friend of mine. I said, hey, you know, I haven't seen this other mutual friend of ours, you know, uh, so-and-so. Have you seen him around? He said, oh, uh, actually, he's decided to leave ministry and now he's working in social work. And now, uh, just a few weeks ago, I went to the funeral of uh, Pastor Christian's mother and, and there at the funeral, I met another pastor, a youth pastor who was from a big church. And I said, hey, I haven't seen you around as well. He said, oh yeah, I, I'm not in ministry anymore. I'm not uh, the youth pastor in this big church that I know of. I said, I'm now a counselor in polytechnic. And, uh, you know, these are not people who have been fresh out of theological college. These are people who have been in ministry as long as I have. But because they love the gospel, they care about the gospel, they care about people, uh, the, the, the cost of ministry has become too much for them. So I remember uh, one of my classmates in Australia, he was a wonderful preacher, much better than I am. If he came up here, you'd think, you know, this is a really good preacher. And he was such a good preacher that, he, uh, that they employed him to be a full-time evangelist in the Anglican Church in Australia. There's this department called the Department of Evangelism. And all he does full-time is to go out and evangelize in schools, in uh, corporate offices, in, in functions, right? You, you want an evangelist? Who do you call? You call up this guy. But recently I found that he, he also left 
the Department of Evangelism, and now he works as a school administrator. Because the cost of ministry was so heavy on him, because you know he got so tired just evangelizing all the time. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, look, I have poured my life into sharing the gospel with you and caring and loving for you. Why would you want to move on into another gospel, another message, which is more attractive or because more attractive people are preaching it? Then he goes on, the next uh, section. Okay, now these are groups of two, okay? Okay. Very, what you have to do is be able to count to two and three. Alright? So he says here, look, impurity and understanding, that's one group. Patience and kindness, another group. In, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, that's another group. In truthful speech and the power of God, okay, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left hand. Now it's interesting because um, he talks about the power of God and the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't talk about it in terms of the way that many contemporary Christians understand it today. You know, some people sometimes come to our church or some other churches and they say, oh, you know, you're not a very spirit-filled church. You know, or your church doesn't have the, you know, exercising the power of God. Now, what do they mean when they say these sort of things? They, they probably mean that, oh, you know, when I come to your church, I don't see people speaking in tongues. Or I don't see people dancing in ecstasy. Right? Or, or having healings or miracles. There's no power in that sense. But look at what Paul uses the Holy Spirit and the power of God to describe. Look, look at the verse. Look at those verses. The Holy Spirit is synonymous with the Christian character that he has. Right? The Holy Spirit is synonymous with the purity, the understanding, the patience, the kindness, the sincere love that he has. The power of God is synonymous with the weapons of righteousness in his right hand and his left hand. Now, what is, what is Paul talking about? What, what power of righteousness does he have? I watched Gladiator yesterday, right? Does he mean some sort of shield or spike or axe? No. The context tells us again, right, in verse 21 of chapter 5, right, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, the weapons of righteousness are the preaching of the Gospels and the preaching of Jesus being sin for people. So what Paul is saying is the substance of his person is filled with the Holy Spirit and is the reformed character. He doesn't lie to them, he doesn't cheat them, he's not trying to deceive them. Right? The substance of his message is all centered around Jesus dying for people, uh, being sin for people. So in that case, why would they want to move to a different gospel? Why would you move on to a different gospel, Paul is saying? Because my character is such that I'm not lying to you or deceiving you or cheating you. I'm telling you the truth. That's what it says there, isn't it? Truthful speech in verse 7. I'm telling you about Jesus giving you righteousness. Then the last reason in verse 8 to verse 10 uh, is all about... Um, how the world sees Paul, or how he's regarded by the false teachers, and how God sees uh, Paul's ministry. You notice there? So, how does the world see Paul? Well, the world sees Paul in dishonor. Right? It, says, it says that in dishonor. But, but God sees him doing glory. That's what he's doing. It's glorious ministry. Uh, there is bad report. From people are trying to say bad things about Paul, but there is good report from what God is seeing Paul do. And all this, uh, next slide, okay, 
is because earlier on again in chapter 5, Paul says that here he is Christ's ambassador. Now, ambassador is a very interesting thing, isn't it? Because when you're the ambassador, you don't speak for yourself, you don't care how people perceive you really, because you are the spokesman for your country. So, yesterday I was listening on the BBC, and uh, there was the Bahraini ambassador. And the BBC interview was beating him up, punching him, right? Saying, you know, you're torturing people, you're human rights abusers, you're locking up people without trial. And the poor guy was saying, no, 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 my government's position, I mean, he's English, I don't know, not very good or so. My government's position is, you know, we strenuously deny this. And, 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 and the guy was like, you can see, hear him sweating over the radio, you know, right? He, he can't take it, right? But, but he just has to speak what the government's position is. It's the same thing when you have the American ambassador or the British ambassador or the Singapore ambassador. They're not speaking for themselves, they're speaking for their country. And that's what Paul is saying here. Uh, if you look at verse 8 to verse uh, 10, he's, he's speaking on behalf of Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter what people think of him or what people see him. His message is the message that Christ wants him to preach. So what Paul is really saying here is, if he's Christ's ambassador, if you move away from Paul, then you've moved away from Jesus Christ. So those three things, right? He's saying, look, why do you want to move away from me? Right? Because I am Christ's ambassador. I will keep preaching this message even through good times or bad times, good report, bad report, difficulty and hardship. If you want to stick with the Bible, if you want to stick with Paul's message, it comes at great cost. People will say bad things, but in God's eyes, you will be seen in a favorable light. Now, there's this guy called Jim Packer, right? J.I. Packer. Uh, have, you, have any of you heard of J.I. Packer? Okay, he's a very, very famous theologian. The Time magazine, even the Time magazine, said that he's one of the most influential theologians of the last century. He's still alive now, right? Now, one day, J.I. Packer received a letter in his mail saying, you are suspended from ministry by his denomination. So here, the great, one of the greatest theologians of this century received in his mail a letter saying, you are suspended from ministry from his own denomination. And why? Because he refused to ordain women into the ministry or ordain homosexuals into the ministry. But Jim Packer, J.R. Packer said he will not move away from his position because it is, it is God's message that counts. It is God's word that is more important than what the denomination thinks. Just uh, a few weeks ago, I met a pastor friend and uh, he was telling me about his very sad story. I met out with him for lunch. He was saying that there was a family in the church who wanted to get baptized. Or oh, actually, I got a... For the sake of protecting his identity, the story is a bit... Not so uh, straightforward, right? But the family wanted to get baptized. So he met up with them, and he talked to them for a while, and they said that they believe that the Gospels in the Bible, you know all the red letters in your Bible, uh, they believe that the red letters were all God's words. But all the rest of the Bible in black, that's all just people's experience of God, right? That's not actually God's word. It's not actually, you know, uh, it's just, you can take it or leave it lah. You know, it's just, it's just for your advice only, right? Okay? So my friend uh, said to them, 
If that's the case, I cannot baptize you because you're not Christian. You know, you, you, you do not accept God's word to you. You're only accepting what you want, the Gospels only. Well, the leaders of the church then told him that if you do not baptize these people, you're out. But we will not renew your license. So, my friend, what did he do? He said, well, if that's the case, well, then I'm out. Because I will not baptize these people because they are not Christian. But you see, that is exactly what Paul is saying, isn't it? That whatever good report, bad report, difficulties, whatever, he will still stick with the message because it is he is Christ's ambassador. What matters is what God thinks. And in the same way, he's saying to, to the young Christians in Corinth, including ourselves today, like, why do you want to move on to a different message? Right? I've, I've, I've suffered for you to tell you this message. I'm of good character. I'm shaped by the Holy Spirit. I have the power of God in me. And I'm Christ's ambassador. I will keep telling you the right message, no matter whether you want to hear it or not. Why would you move on to something else? Now, as we reflect on uh, this passage in our world today, uh, I think it's even for ourselves, uh, there's, a, there's a temptation in the world out there where we go away from the message of Paul. We go away from Paul's message of Jesus Christ and Jesus dying for us alone. Now you might sort of say, you know, Andrew, ah, you know, you're being a alarmist, right? Maybe you're a bit not, <coughs> paranoid, neurotic, which I am in other things, okay? But a few weeks ago, when I was on holiday, I went to visit this church. Okay, all these stories are true, okay? I don't make it up. I went to visit this church. The church has a very good reputation. We went there, the music was good. You know, a very nice setup. Everything was, you know, very professionally done. The speaker went up. It was entertaining, good delivery, funny. But as he kept talking and talking, I noticed he kept saying that we need Jesus because we are alienated from God. He keeps saying, you know, we're alienated from one another. That's why the world is the way it is today. That's why Singapore is the way it is today, right? And God wants to bring us back together. God wants to make us whole. And God wants to restore us. Now, as you're listening to that, is there anything wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with that? Well, the problem was, he never once mentioned the word, the three-letter word. And what's that three-letter word? Sin. He never once mentioned the word sin. It was always about God wanting to make you whole again, to restore you, to, re- to bring you back to where you're supposed to be. But he never mentioned that word sin. You know, it's not a very big word, it's not a very difficult word to pronounce, it's just sin, right? But he never once mentioned it. And I, sort of, I was listening to the sermon, I said, something is not quite right here. Now, why doesn't he mention sin? And then after the sermon, we had a communion. And then, during the communion, they kept describing the communion as the proclamation of Jesus. The proclamation of Jesus. When we, when we take the communion, we're proclaiming Jesus. But that's, that's not what the communion is, right? That's not what the Lord's Supper is. The Lord's Supper is Jesus dying for our sins. And I think that the problem is, you know, after the, I left the church, I, you can talk to my wife, I was very shaken. I was thinking, you know, what is, what, you know, have this, has this church blown it? Have they lost God's grace? Have they thrown it all away? Because they're moving away from understanding of salvation as Jesus becoming sin for us so that we do not have sin and we're saved to the idea of making us God, you know, Jesus died for us to make us better, to make us feel whole, to restore us, restore our relationships. 
So like in the Projectivity talk, David Jackman said, we cannot have a vague idea of what it means to be Christian. We cannot, in his terms, have a muddle in the middle. Right? We must know that the centrality of our church must always be Jesus Christ and his death saving us from our sins. It's not about the Ten Commandments. It's not about being a good person. It's not about God wanting to make us whole or restoring us. Right? So I've got this book called What is the Healthy Church? by this guy called Mark Diva. And right in the beginning, the second page of chapter 1, he says, a Christian is someone who first and foremost has been forgiven his sin and been reconciled to God the Father through Jesus Christ. And this happens when a person repents of his sins and puts his faith in the perfect life, substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I think that, you know, we must always be careful. It's not about just words. I'm not just playing with words, right? Because if we move away from the message of Paul, which is Jesus Christ dying for us and being sin for us to save us, then we've lost uh, our salvation. We, we've just thrown it all away. Now, the first problem that uh, the Corinthian Christians had, which was moving away to another gospel, moving away from the message of Paul and Jesus Christ becoming sin for us, then there's a second problem, which is that the Corinthian Christians moving back to their old life, going back to the temple, going back to their own sinful lifestyle. And this is what Paul says in response. So look at what it says there in chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Okay, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now this is a very powerful sentence. Because in the original language, this is the only uh, sentence in this section which is an imperative. Imperative means it's an instruction, it's a direct order. Okay, this imperative means it's like, a, think of it this way, it's like a stop sign or, you know, no parking allowed sign. Okay, so it's, it's like, it should be seen like this. Okay, do not be yoked together. That's, that's, the, that's the tone of this verse. Now, uh, so many people have thought, you know, okay, this is all about marriage, right? So please clear all those thoughts from your mind. And let's get into what the passage is saying, because it's not about, just about marriage, unbelievers, okay? Now, what does yoke mean? Yoke is not what you have with your egg, okay? Uh, next slide. Yoke is where you have animals which are put together with a, a wooden beam to hold them together. That means they're yoked together, okay? They're tied together, they're, they're intertwined together, they're involved together. You see, the cows are yoked together, okay? This is the real life situation, okay? So then they're used to pull uh, farming implements, you know, this is before tractors and, uh, you know, uh, gasoline engines, whatever, okay? And uh, Paul here uses a phrase, do not be yoked together, unbelievers, and many people see, see it actually coming in its original context in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, okay? So next slide. Okay, so Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, it says, do not plow with an ox or a donkey yoked together. Now, that makes sense, uh, even to us who are not to farming, right? Because we know that an ox and a donkey are two very different animals. Okay, now which one is a donkey and which one is the ox? Okay, this is the ox and this is the donkey. Okay, I know that because that's what Google tells me. Alright? But you can see that the ox is shorter and fatter, whereas the donkey is taller and narrower. Right? So, even if you wanted to... to to yoke the two, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because they're different heights and they, they walk on different speeds. So, it doesn't make sense to yoke 
the ox and the donkey together. And here, Paul is using the principle with the Christian or the believer with the unbeliever. And in verse uh, 14 onwards, he explains why it doesn't make sense to yoke them together or to intertwine or join them together. He says, therefore, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Now again, in chapter 5, verse 21, because Jesus has died for us and has taken away our sin, we are righteous. So what do the righteous have with the, the wicked? Or what fellowship can, have, can light have with darkness? Because we have been taken out of darkness into the light. What harmony is there between Christ and Bilal? Now, Bilal is just another word for Satan, right? So what's, what's the harmony between Christ and Satan? They're, they're enemies, right? They, they fight one another. Uh, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? So what he's actually saying is, you cannot yoke uh, the unbeliever and the believer together. Because when you yoke two things together, right, then they move in the same direction, isn't it? Uh, if, you have, if you're yoked to something, you move together because you're attached to one another, right? So you, if you're yoked together, you cannot afford to move in separate directions. You're together. So what Paul is actually saying is, if you yoke uh, the believer and unbeliever together, then the danger is they will move back into darkness. They will move away from God, move back into the old life. And that's why in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. See, the danger is that the, the Corinthian Christians were, were going back to the old life. And how that was happening was because they were yoked with the, the old way of living, uh, the, the, the influences that were around them. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, next slide, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, they were going back morally. Uh, in chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 5 it says, But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. They were going back to their old life in terms of uh, going to church in the morning and then going to the temple in the afternoon. Right, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than He? So what does this mean in practice? Okay. Now, I already said uh, that the original context is not about uh, uh, Christian marrying non-Christian. Right? It's not as if the Corinthians wrote to Paul and said, Hey, uh, Paul, we have a question. Could you please get back to us on this? Is it okay for a Christian to marry a non-Christian? Because it's, that's a very narrow or restrictive view of this passage. Uh, what Paul is saying is, he's saying to the singles and the dating and the marriage that whatever yokes you or ties you or intertwines you with this world such that you are pulled away from Jesus and your loyalty to Jesus and pulled back to the old way of living, that is something that you must get out of. So, what does he mean? Well, I'll give you a few illustrations that other pastors have used so that you know, you don't think about picking on people. So this guy called Paul Barnett, who is a pastor, he says, okay, one example is, you are yoked with an unbeliever where, in your life, you are so influenced by a friend, or a group of friends, or a mentor, or a relative, that you find them leading you away from Jesus Christ. 
Now, I know that to be true. I remember when I was uh, studying in university, I had a friend of mine who was a very strong Christian. This, she was a girl. But she liked to play softball. And all the softball friends kept saying, oh, you know, come and play softball with us on Sunday morning. Because uh, unfortunately in Australia, a lot, even in Singapore, there was a lot of competitions take place on Sunday morning. So come and play softball with us on, on Sunday morning. And don't worry about going to Bible study, right? And, and all that sort of stuff. You've got to come for softball practices. And after softball practices, come to the pub with us and do all those sort of things. See, the problem is once you're yoked with those sort of people, then they are taking you away from God. They're bringing you back into the darkness, into the old life. So, as you reflect on your own life, do you have friends like that? Your sporting friends, or maybe someone at work, a relative, where you're so yoked to them that their influence is bringing you away, back from God, going back to the old life. Now, obviously, uh, dating is a very strong relationship as well. If you're dating with someone, then obviously it leads to marriage, and in marriage, because you're so yoked to someone, you can be pulled back to the old life. In fact, many times people are pulled back to away from Jesus, back to the world. So again, Paul Barnett was saying how she knew of a woman, he knew of a woman who wanted to become a missionary. And this woman met a nice young man, and he says, you know, they're always nice young men, right? right you, you, they never go out unnice young people, right? And they end up getting married, and today this woman who wanted to become a missionary is not even a Christian today. I met with Paul Barker, he was our church camp speaker uh, a few years ago, and he told me of how in his church in Australia there was a very good leader. He was a youth leader, he was in charge of youth, he was coming through, there were great hopes that he would actually become a full-time worker. And he started dating a, a, a nice young woman, and uh, Paul met up with him one day, and, and Paul told him and said, you know, this is not right for you. You will not profit from this. This will be bad for you. And uh, the Christian man was so uh, offended, apparently, he wrote him a letter and said, no, I was so offended by what you said. And I, I mean, you all have met Paul Barker before. He's not a very offensive person. I'm sure he didn't say it in a rude way. He said, I'm so offended by the things you said. I'm not coming to church anymore. And, uh, and today he's not a Christian. So, the thing is, if you're, if you're dating a non-Christian, then you should break up. Right? Because it will, it will bring you back to the old life. Now, if you're already married to a non-Christian, then you should not get divorced. Okay? And I remember John, this uh, guy, John Woodhouse, had very good things to say. If you're already married uh, to, to uh, a non-Christian, then the answer is not to get divorced, but the answer is to not be influenced in such a way as to lose your Christianity. And uh, this guy, John Woodhouse, had a very good thing to say. He said that we as a church are not here to condemn those who are already married to non-Christians, but to help them, to make sure that they do not be pulled and sucked away uh, into unbelief, but to keep being strong in Christ. Like someone said, the church must be like a support team to, to keep helping people who are already married to non-Christians. Now, I'm quite lucky to be here this Sunday because when I went on holiday, I think I, uh, I nearly died right? because I was swimming and then there was a, there was a rip in the ocean and we sort of ran in for the very first time and then the water was pulling us out. Anyway, my wife was floating away so I managed to grab her and pull her back. right? And, uh, and then we finally got our feet on the sand and we had to walk and uh, pull ourselves you know, 
literally like fighting against the rib to get back to shore. And I think what Paul is saying here is, just as in Corinth, in Singapore today, I think we, when I describe Corinth, very much like Singapore today, right? Uh, people respect power, money, status. Uh, people have sex on the mind. You just have to read the newspaper over the last few weeks, right? Of all those people who slept with those that underage prostitutes, I, I can't imagine there's so many people, right? I mean, and, and that, you know, there's so many influences around, confusing influences in terms of Christian life. So we're sort of being pulled away from Jesus. We're pulled away from God's grace. But we must fight against it. We must fight against it by not moving away from the Bible and the message of Jesus and the cross. And we must fight against it by not being yoked with unbelievers in such a way that we are pulled back to the old way of living. Either we go back to immorality or we go to, uh, to lose Jesus. In conclusion, uh, I remember uh, we went to Vietnam a few times for mission trip. So I got a bit interested in Vietnam history. So I bought a few books on the Vietnam War and everything. Maybe I read more about the war than Vietnam history. Lah. Anyway, apparently... In the Vietnam War, uh, which was basically fought by the American soldiers against North, Vietnam, North Vietnamese and the Khmer, uh, and the, and the, uh, what's the, but anyway, the, the communist underground army, the local, the local, um, Vietnamese government soldiers, apparently, when the fighting got really tough, they had a reputation of taking off their uniform and blending in with the population. Like, you know, like, let's say the overwhelming force, you know, they could see all the, 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 the communist uh, soldiers coming, they just take off their uniform, throw the guns away and just walk off. And I think that uh, the temptation for us as Christians is the same, isn't it? When things get tough, there's a lot of pressure from the outside, confusion on the inside. Temptation is we just throw it all away and we just merge in to uh, blend in with the world around us. We, we, we move away from the demanding gospel that we have. We, we give up uh, the, the difficult life of uh, holiness and just go back to the old way of living but what Paul is saying is once you do that you've, you've lost God's grace you've lost God's favor you've got, lost God's salvation and, and he says right from the very beginning do not receive God's grace in vain do not blow it do not throw it all away now is the day of God's salvation now is the day of God's favor this is in Jesus Christ's death on the cross, it is the fulfillment of God's promises and there will never be anything greater than it. So don't take it for granted. Don't take it in vain. But keep holding on to it as you hold on to the gospel and not be yoked with unbelievers and go back into the world. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we really want to uh, pray that your word will have power in our lives uh, that uh, even though it is difficult, it is costly, we will hold on to your word. And that, dear Father, we will also not be yoked with uh, unbelievers, and that we will not be uh, pulled away back to immorality, uh, pulled back to idolatry, pulled back to a rebellion against you. Uh, we know that the temptations are very strong, and that we need to be alert. And that's why the warning of your word is so strong to us today. And we pray that we do not take it lightly, but really examine our lives to make sure that we will not take your grace in vain. And that we will always hold on to Jesus dying for our sins on the cross. 
And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.